0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. For many, the holiday season brings more family time. And with that often comes the resurrection of the sibling rivalry. Though simmering resentment between siblings has inspired countless works of art, few hit as close to the bone as Susan Laurie Park's Pulitzer-winning play, Top Dog, Underdog, which recently returned to Broadway. The play originally premiered on Broadway back in 2002 to staggering success. And now it's having a renaissance, partially because of these two men. Corey Hawkins and Yaya Abdul-Mateen II.
2: Yeah, that was all those years ago, and now here we are, you know, all these years later on Broadway with it.
3: So it's a blessing. It's been a dream of mine to get to rediscover this play in the way that we're doing it. I think it's just, it's just really special.
1: Top Dog Underdog is a two-man show about two brothers, Lincoln and Booth. Yes, that is an allusion to Abraham Lincoln and his killer, John Wilkes Booth. Lincoln, played by Corey Hawkins, has a job playing Abraham Lincoln in a local arcade game every night. And every night, he gets shot. Lincoln is the older brother and has this world-weary protectiveness to him. And Booth, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, is the younger brother. He's naive, excitable, and desperate to prove himself to Big Brother Lincoln. The two brothers share a one-room rental apartment as they struggle to eke out an existence. Throughout the play, we watch as they bump heads again and again, unraveling their family history and possibly their relationship in the process. How did you feel the first time you came across the play, Top Dog, Underdog? Corey, we'll start with you.
2: So the first time I I read it was after seeing a production of it at Juilliard, and I just remember it was, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. So first I picked it up and I read it a few times. Mm -hmm. And then I then remember going over and and trying to watch it years ago at, at Lincoln center. And, uh, it stuck with me for years, mainly because we were working on the classics at Juilliard, but the classics didn't look like what I thought the classics probably should look like. (laughs) Or, or or to be honest, I don't even know if I knew that quote unquote, the word classics could encapsulate all of our experiences and so I thought it was incredible and, and an opportunity to explore something like this
1: yeah yeah what about you
2: uh this might have been about
3: 15 years ago or something like that I uh participated in a director's showcase and uh she was putting it up and so uh she chose two scenes one was a scene from Othello Othello and Desdemona the bedroom scene and then she mashed together a couple scenes from top dog underdog and sort of made a 15 minute scene and uh, I played Booth and um, that was the first time that I read anything contemporary that felt like it was made for me mm. you know I said oh I know Lincoln and Booth from around the way they're in my family or oh, I went to school with Lincoln and Booth and uh, I like these characters I love these characters and it makes me feel like more of myself on stage
1: so Top Dog Underdog centers on two main conflicts between Lincoln and Booth one is that Booth, who's unemployed, wants to set up shop with his big brother, running games of three-card monte, while Lincoln has left that hustle behind for a quieter life. And the other is that Lincoln and Booth were essentially abandoned by their parents, and, and they have different ways of grieving that loss. Corey, in a recent interview, you described Top Dog Underdog as a fable, mm-hmm. and I That was so intriguing to me when I thought about Booth and Lincoln's relationship. But um, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear more from you about that. What makes this play a fable?
2: When we talk about, you know, this sort of age-old tale, this sort of thing about these two brothers, the Cain and Abel mm-hmm. of it all. Mm-hmm. You have these, these brothers who are sort of, I don't want to say trapped, but um, mm-hmm. sort of encapsulated by the, this 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 beautiful sort of gold curtain of what we call, you know, the American dream. These people who are trying to get ahead, who are trying to chase that American dream and just can't seem to catch a break for whatever reason, mm-hmm. whatever that, whether that's the trauma that they grew up with or their own doing. It's something that these brothers are, are fighting up against, but they can't see it. You know, it's it's just mm-hmm. outside the the window they have to walk out that door and put on a mask every single day right. um which is similar to what i have to do as a black man every single day similar to what maybe yaya has to do may, you may have to do as a black woman so it's 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 a story that for me is both specific and universal i think these characters
3: are iconic characters they're recognizable mm-hmm. characters that we can see out in the world. You can see when someone is a Lincoln. You can mm-hmm. see when someone is is a booth in the same way that you can see the, the way that someone is operating like a tortoise and someone is operating like a hare. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you sort of know, you, you can look at their patterns, look at their habits, identify them, and, and you can tell where their trajectory is uh, heading towards.
1: Yeah. It's, um, it's funny. I was thinking about like, in thinking about this play being a fable, Um, Mm. so much of what makes fables work, like you say, the tortoise and the hare, the grasshopper and the ant, I think is one of them, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you have an idea that you're going to learn some sort of lesson or that things aren't going to end in a way that is, there's no happy ending. And I feel Mm. like in fables, you kind of Mm -hmm. know coming in how something's going to go down (laughs) basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there's two things that Susan Laurie Parks did with this play, which is give you all these names, Lincoln and Booth. Which, yeah. if you know uh, even a tiny bit about American history, you kind of know um, how those two names are related. But also, there are all these forces that are happening just outside of the apartment. But when you look in the – oh, I got my little playbill right here. When you look in the playbill, it says basically mm-hmm. that the setting for the play is here and now. What is your favorite theme of this play, and how does it resonate in your own life?
3: Well, I like how black it is. Susan Laurie said that she wrote this play so that brothers like me, like myself and Corey, could shine. Mm. So as an actor, as a Black actor classically trained, I have a craving for excellent material. I have a craving to be on a stage or on a set and say great words Mm. and form great relationships. And I, I haven't always gotten that opportunity. The second part of that is that this play to me is about Brotherhood it's about humanity it's about the american dream it's a love story It, it, it like it, to me it's just about the relationship it's it's all of those things
1: mm-hmm. but every
3: time I, I step onto those boards i'm just really trying to be like my big brother mm-hmm. and that's so simple
1: you both have brought this up but um i feel the same way about this specific thing. Like Lincoln and Booth feel very knowable to me. They, mm-hmm. they could be based off of guys I know. Um, Lincoln's kind of a curmudgeon who wants a simpler life and, mm. and wants to protect his younger brother. And Booth is a classic little brother. And I can speak authoritatively on both because <laughs> I'm a middle <laughs> child, okay? So mm-hmm. Booth's a classic little brother. Like he, he wants to be included and, and he wants to be so much like his big brother. And I wonder, who are you channeling? or what parts of yourselves are you channeling?
2: It's interesting because I, I growing up, I, I always sort of, uh, when I came across the play years ago, it was Booth who I saw because I saw him through <laughs> youthful eyes. Mm. And so <laughs> while I loved Booth's energy and his, his fire, his quest for just trying to, trying to do better, be better, Lincoln was always a bit of an enigma for me. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, he still is, and I'm still peeling back the layers of who he is. I'm I'm an older brother. I have a younger sister who's six years younger than me and grew up helping to raise her with a single mother. But when we're talking about channeling, my cousins came to see the opening Mm -hmm. and they asked me about Uncle Earl. They asked me about my grandfather. Mm -hmm. They asked me about some of the patriarchs in my family and how they saw you know, those isms from those men. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that. So when we're talking about channeling, it's crazy because I think as artists, as you grow up, you sort of take on a lot of you know, the people around you and you pour that back into the characters that, that you portray. And it surprised me, Lincoln has surprised me but at the end of the day, like you said, he just wants to he wants to maintain, he wants order, he wants to protect, he wants normalcy. But I also think he strives in chaos. And so there's a bit of that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde mm. element there to him mm. that is f- so fun to sort of find that balance and find when when it pops off and when he wants to truly be who what his true nature is, because his true nature and Booth's true nature. I think that's when that that beautiful train wreck like Yaya was just (laughs) talking about, that's when it really starts to unravel. I think I'm speaking up for uh,
3: a very younger version of myself. Myself when I was 20, 21, I remember what it was like when I found uh, Booth. What is it like to have that sort of naivete, but to be older, but to be... A man. Mm. What does it mean to be unfulfilled as a man and to have dreams as a man? I'm exploring a booth that wants to be that needs to be a part of the mix because if it's not, then it means that that he's not as important as he thought he was, or he's not as special as he thought he was. And it means that he's a failure. Hmm. I don't think twenty-one year olds think about being failures. They think about potential, potential, potential. Right. And this guy is a man who's thinking about being a failure. He knows that he's going to die and nobody's going to remember who he's not going to leave a mark on the world.
1: And in in, in researching for this interview, I found this quote from Susan Laurie Parks uh, from 2002 is from this behind the scenes documentary that someone had made about the whole process of top dog underdog getting to Broadway. And this interviewer suggests very strongly to her, that Top Dog Underdog must be an exploration of race. That's what the play has to be about. And Susan Laurie Parks pushes back on that. And she says, you know, black people, when they hang out, is it an exploration of race? Um, she seems to push back very hard on the reporter's idea that this play is necessarily about race. Um, hmm. It seems to me, watching the, the the play, that that the focus is meant to be on these two brothers in a room together, and that seemed to be what Susan Lloyd Parks was saying as well. Yeah, yeah. Does that feel right to you?
3: Well, you know that feels right to me based on how I've answered everything else. You know, I, I <laughs> you know, it, it's about it's about Lincoln and Booth, and it's about their situation. They're not blind to the fact that they're black. Correct me if I'm wrong, Corey, but I don't know how much we talk about being Black in the Mm -hmm. play. This play, what I love about it is that it's about humans, but the play can't help but to be Black. So, you know, (laughs) if that's what you get from it, then sure, that's what you get. But if I wrote an essay about top dog, underdog, it'll probably be about love. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I don't think these brothers walk around every day in this skin uh, thinking about race. Mm And the circumstances are that they are black. We understand that. That's the we we know what the outside world is. But when he gets to come back into this room, when he gets to come back in home and and sit on that couch and be himself, when he walks through that door, I don't think he's trying to scare, you know, uh, his brother with the fact that he has on his Lincoln <laughs> get up and stuff like that. It's just that's that's just him, you know. He just gets to walk back in. He gets to come home and be himself, his true self. Yeah, And so if there is a white person or an interviewer, I don't know the race of this interview in that documentary, but (laughs) if that person is bringing that to it, then that's what they bring to it. Mm -hmm. It might be for someone else. It might be just about love because that person, uh, the person next to that person, you know, woke up that morning and needed to see some love and needed some humor. And so that's the the scope and lens in which they see the play that night. And that's the beautiful sort of um, lenticular I should say, that Kenny Leon <laughs> just likes to, you know, the image just changes. It just changes as you as you watch the play and as you experience life and you come back and see the play a week later and you're going to find some things and it might be about race for you that night because you had an experience mm-hmm. that day that, that, mm-hmm. that, that that's hot for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of what we get to do night after night live with 800 people, 1,000 people sitting at an audience all making a pact to suspend our disbelief and go on this journey. That's just the, pff, the magic and mastery of Top Dog for me.
1: Corey, Yaya, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. This is really great. Thanks for having us, Brittany.
2: Thank you. Appreciate you.
1: That was Corey Hawkins and Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, the stars of Top Dog Underdog, the two-man play which is on Broadway till January 15th. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back... We're revisiting a classic, Blockbuster, which recently got a reboot in the form of a series on Netflix. We'll be right back.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card.
4: This message comes from the BBC with Where to Be a Woman. Join hosts Sachi Cole and Sophia Smith-Gaylor to find out where in the world women can live their best lives. Search for Where to Be a Woman from BBC Podcasts.
0: This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: My husband is like one of your biggest fans. Oh my God. When Always Be My Maybe came out, <laughs> <laughs> we've probably seen it in my household probably 30 or 40 times.
5: So, <laughs> oh my like, God.
1: <laughs> when he was like, I don't know what else to watch. I don't know what's on TV. He's like, well, I think I'm going to turn on Always Be My Baby.
5: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing.
1: If that voice doesn't sound familiar to you, my next guest today is Randall Park. Talk about an actor with range. In 2014, he blew up Hollywood playing a very satirical version of Kim Jong-un in The Interview. I'm 31 years old. The fact that I'm running a country is a batshit crazy. Then he played Louis Huang, one of the first network sitcoms all about an Asian-American family.
5: Eddie, I know you're not excited to leave D.C., but you're going to love Orlando. I've been there for six months setting up the restaurant and I've grown to love it like the daughter we wished Evan had been.
1: And then, of course, he starred opposite comedian Ali Wong in the Netflix rom-com Always Be My Maybe. But most recently, Randall is starring in another sitcom, Blockbuster. It's a Netflix work comedy from the creators of Superstore, and Randall plays Timmy, the manager of a fictional last remaining Blockbuster store, trying with relentless optimism to breathe life into a dying business, which isn't a new experience for Randall. I read that you had worked at a video store in high school. Like, how much of yourself did you see in Timmy and his group of friends on Blockbuster? I see a
5: lot of myself now in Timmy. Hmm. But back then, I was way more of a slacker than Timmy is in the show. (laughs) It was just a place to be and just hang out. And I could care less about how well that store did at the time. But now I see a lot of myself in Timmy. There's a lot of uh, parallels there.
1: What attracted you to playing him?
5: I think the idea of trying to keep something alive that is... Definitely going to (laughs) die, but still (laughs) trying your best. You know, I think that resonates with me a lot in part because my dad owned a one hour photo store for Mm. many years and he, it was just him working in that store. He had no employees. It was a tiny little store in Santa Monica. And uh, I saw the digital age just coming for it, you know, and just the idea of trying to keep something alive, knowing that it's time is up. Something about that. I feel like there's beauty in that.
1: There's something special about Randall's acting, a sense of humor and genuine energy that my husband and I love. But it was a long road to his current success because, not surprising, it wasn't easy for a young Korean American like Randall to see himself as a famous actor. Who did you look to as a model for your comedy or your career when you were younger?
5: I mean, white folks who are on TV and who are on the movies. (laughs) Folks who I, you know, I I would just watch a lot of sitcoms and just be obsessed with TV. Throughout those years, yes, when there was an Asian face, I feel like every Asian person in the country (laughs) jumped out of their seat. (laughs) Regardless of the size of the role, deep background, we'd jump out of our seat and be like, look, there's an Asian person, you know.
1: Randall and I talked about the years he spent forging a path for himself in Hollywood and the passion he puts not just into his roles, but into creating. But first, we went back to where it all began after a quick break.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, a people's history tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu.
1: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up.
4: Yeah, you. If you're
1: listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen, and good luck can happen, and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. On campus at UCLA, you started a theater group in college called LCC, which stands for... Yeah,
5: LaFu the Coyote that cares. LaFu yeah. the yeah. Coyote
1: yep. that <laughs> That has a lot of the same energy, I feel like, starting a theater troupe in college like to create this space for Asian American actors to play, to hang out together, where it previously didn't exist.
5: We thought we were changing the world at that time. (laughs) Everything was so grandiose. And the fact that we were starting this theater company, it was going to truly have a hand in like shaping culture, you know. And, uh, (laughs) you know, at the time, we put on our plays that The audience came and it was very magical and very big for us in our little world, but we wouldn't realize the change that was to come from that theater company in terms of Mm the people that came out of it who are doing things, whether they be writers, executives, Ali Wong, you know, just like really (laughs) great. And a ton of actors, working actors who came from that theater company, which is, you know, kind of crazy because at the time it was like pretty much a bunch of folks whose parents wanted them to be doctors and lawyers (laughs) and we wanted to express another side of us without much, or really without any training or background in it. You know, I certainly... Never thought of myself as an actor until I stepped on stage for that theater company.
1: And so you had this amazing experience with LCC where you got to see yourself in so many different, not just so many different parts of the creative process, right? Writing and acting and performing. Yeah. But also like seeing yourself in so many different types of roles and in so many different lights. And then you get to Hollywood and (laughs) you're like, (laughs) we can end the sentence there, but (laughs) you get to Hollywood. And you're confronted with how limiting the industry can be with regard to parts for Asian American actors, with regard to parts for any person of color ever. Yeah. And yet you've been able to build this really fantastic career. Like, how did you transcend that?
5: Well, it was a long road. I mean, I kind of knew going in, but mm-hmm. I thought somehow maybe I was special enough to break <laughs> through that. And I wasn't special enough. So it took a long time. Just chipping away. Mm. And during that chipping away, I just kept writing and doing other things. Mm. You know, a bunch of us from that college theater company, we formed our own theater company and we put on shows. And I got into doing stand up, I got into doing improv, and eventually, you know, got into making videos and web series and shorts. And I think just staying creatively alive on my terms helped get me through. That decade plus of uh, just struggling.
1: And at this point in your career, you're at this moment where you are, you got your second sitcom, which is already such a huge accomplishment, but you've also played such a wide range of roles. And I feel like it can be really easy for comedic actors to be typecast as one kind of funny. Yeah. How did you achieve this mix of characters, like, in your filmography?
5: I don't know. I just kind (laughs) of just... (laughs) You know, I will say, I do think those years in that theater company in college and after college, where, like you said, I got to do so many different things. I feel like that kind of planted this audacious idea that I could play a lot of different things, you know. (laughs) And uh, there's still a lot of luck involved and timing and all that, but... For me, it's just one job at a time and just try to do my best and try to have fun. And I've been lucky enough that the jobs that have come to me have been pretty varying in different ways.
1: To dig deeper on some of your roles, like your role in the interview, okay? I'm sure you (laughs) thought it was risky at the time, or I would guess you thought it was risky at the time. And of course, looking back, Sony hack (laughs) like... I think (laughs) looking back, it was definitely risky. But what was your thought process about taking that role and playing that character? Like, were you concerned about any backlash?
5: To be honest, I wasn't expecting that backlash, you know? Like, I really, really wasn't. And I think maybe because I'm super dumb. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I have a feeling that's not it.
5: <laughs> <laughs> but I I read it, and I thought it was so great, and I just seemed like it would be super fun. And when all of that happened, I guess I was surprised, but I understood <laughs> it, you know? So it wasn't like I was in complete shock. I think there was also this part of me where it was like, oh my gosh, I get the chance to play a lead character in a movie. Mm. And that stuff wasn't coming to me at that time. It was like, oh man, it's crazy and ridiculous. But I get to take this role and try to do something with it. And I think at that time, I just wasn't getting that, you know, I I wasn't getting... Those types of offers, I mean, I had to audition for it, but I wasn't being offered even those types of auditions. So, you know, on multiple levels, I think it really kind of made me excited, you know, and then we all knew what happened after that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So to talk about a completely different role, totally different vibe. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, my household is obsessed with Always Be My Maybe. Oh my God. Of all the things that you could have written and performed, why... Was that the role that you wanted to write and play, this romantic lead?
5: Because I love rom coms and <laughs> I wasn't being offered anything like that. And mm. I always wanted to play a, a lead in a rom com. It was like, okay, we'll just write it with my really close friend, Allie, who also wanted to always be in a rom com. Uh, Along with our friend from the theater company, Mike Galamco, he came in and wrote with us. So it's kind of, again, this family affair. And then we brought in our friend Nanachka Khan, who directed it, who created Fresh Off the Boat. Right. It was kind of the fulfillment of so many dreams. And it was really one of the great experiences of my career.
1: That feeling definitely came through on screen. It was like one of my go-to classic romantic comedies. Wow. Yeah. I mean, oh. Definitely. I mean, if I didn't make that clear enough. <laughs> Definitely. But it's interesting because, like, I know that what you're saying is true, right? That it's hard for people of, it's basically hard for any non white person to be cast as a lead in a romantic comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, when I look back to that time, roughly like the mid to late aughts, right? You have The Big Sick, which did really, really well. You have to all the boys I've loved before. Crazy Rich Asians and also Always Be My Maybe. And looking back, it's like these were some of the most talked about films of that period of time. But also they all feature (laughs) Asian leads. It's so silly that the industry kind of remains in this same space when you can look at the material (laughs) and you can sort of see the proof (laughs) in the pudding.
5: Yeah, I mean, we all know, you know, just from our own lives, that romance exists, and people have sex, and people fall in love. Right. I think the belief is, in terms of the industry, it's like, will people watch this? Yeah. Will it be people outside of these communities that watch this, i.e., like, white people, you know? (laughs) And it's like, yes, they will, because... All of these feelings are so universal, you know?
1: How important was it to you that Always Be My Maybe, this rom-com, drew from your own experience? Like, what parts of yourself did you want to share in making that film?
5: Oh, my gosh. So many things. I mean... The losing the virginity aspect of that movie, (laughs) it's like, that came from my life. (laughs) You know, the relationship with the working class dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, the dad, played by the great James Sato is named Harry. That's my dad's kind of American name. Mm -hmm. The mom's a painter. My mom's a painter. We literally used her paintings in the movie. I was in a band very similar to Marcus's band. And, you know, we use that we just kind of, you know, it was like a shot to tell our story. So we kind of put a lot in there that reflected our lives, which was very fulfilling and fun.
1: It's nice to hear about all the personal touches that are in that film, because it's something that's meant a lot to me over the past few years. But I wonder how you're feeling about the impact of your work. Um, What kind of impact are you looking for?
5: You know, I'm not really thinking of that, to be honest with you. I'm really just focused on doing good work, you know, whenever I can, having fun and bringing all of me to the work whenever I get lucky enough to have a job. And I do. yeah, You know, I want it to be impactful, but I also can't control how it impacts others. All I can control is how much I put into it and how much fun I have. And I do hope it has some kind of impact. But if it doesn't, I tried my best and it was worth it. That's how I see it.
1: What's a story that you want to see brought to screen that you like to be a part of?
5: Well, I just directed a movie.
1: Oh, tell us more, (laughs) tell us more, tell us more.
5: I just directed a movie. It's based on a graphic novel called Shortcomings.
1: Mm -hmm. And
5: it was a very revelatory experience for me. It's the kind of story that I've always wanted to see in terms of the Asian-American experience. You know, it's about very flawed people. Mm. And I feel like that's an area that we haven't seen much, and understandably so, because we're still fighting just to get on screen. Right. And when we do get on screen, it's like there is this need to represent and represent right. But I feel like we're getting to a place where representing right means just representing the human experience Mm. and allowing our characters to be a little messed up, a little broken, a little complicated, or very complicated. And I feel like this movie, it's a chance to really show that. So it's been really fun.
1: I'm really excited to see it. Keep us posted on when it's coming out.
5: For sure, for sure. Um,
1: But I have one last question to ask that is (laughs) a selfish question. (laughs) Okay. When will you star in a romantic comedy again? the people want to know
5: when they offer me a great project or when i get tired of waiting and decide to just make one myself like we did last time so hopefully sooner than later
1: it's so enjoyable and so wonderful and i think it's a great vehicle for your talent (laughs) not that you needed my encouragement (laughs)
5: <laughs> no, your encouragement means a lot to me. I appreciate that. Thank you, Brittany. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm remembering this conversation, and it's going to affect my uh, future decisions. I promise
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> you. It feels good to have such influence.
5: Yes, yes.
1: That was Randall Park. His latest series, Blockbuster, is on Netflix. It's a fun, relaxing show, perfect family TV for this holiday season. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Liam McBain, Janet Ujongli, Jamila Huxtable. It was produced and edited by Jessica Mendoza. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
0: This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
2: On NPR's Throughline, We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's throughline wherever you get your podcasts.